Well, I can tell you, I don't give a damn about politics right now. Really? Really, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, you don't give a damn about politics? Really? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. Nope. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, y'all will be voting next week, won't ya? In uh, Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids, WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Up in Seattle on KODX, over in Wisconsin, Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, even during pandemics. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Truth Tellers All, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the Bradcast, your stay-at-home radio companion, though stay-at-home radio companion may not apply in certain states. (laughs) See Georgia. Uh, if nothing else, uh, stand by today for Desi Doyen's latest Green News report. Yes. Hi, Des. So, hello. At least there's that. When she uh, explains how it's possible that the oil industry is now not only giving away oil, they are paying people to take it off their hands. Crazy world we live in. Seriously. <laughs> Uh, Also, our friend, our old friend, Marilyn Marks, will be here shortly to discuss the new lawsuit filed today in federal court against the state of Georgia for their upcoming primary elections now made even worse, if you can imagine, by what the state's horrific clown, criminal, I don't know, take your pick uh, of a governor just did on Monday in the Peach State. But let's start here with some math and some reality, because you may not be getting much of it out there these days, depending on what cable channel may play in your house. A Daily Coast commenter uh, who goes by the name of Computer Geek at Daily Coast, where we post each day's uh, broadcast, commented on our uh, broadcast last Friday when we focused on the fact that the GOP has pretty much officially now become a death cult. Yes, the uh, pretend pro-life party is now anything but. Uh, That following its death cult leader, Donald Trump, it was a lengthy comment from Computer Geek on that uh, Friday show. So I'm going to share part of it here. I'll summarize as needed. Uh, He or she writes, uh, here is the math 
and reality, which we need to make sure keeps getting repeated on every news channel. Currently, according to the people who are supposed to know, the U.S. is doing 147,000 tests for the coronavirus per day. Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? It sounds like a big number to most people, 147,000 tests. Well, the current population of the U.S. is approximately 325 million people. So uh, he notes, or she, if you divide that number by the number of tests being done per day, it rounds out to 2,211. That means it'll take 2,211 uh, 2, days to test everyone in America at the current rate. How many months is that? It is 73.7 months. If we assume a month is 30 days, how many years would it take? It would take six years using 365 days in a year. We don't have that kind of time. No, you think? Six years to test everyone in America. Computer Geek goes on to say, now, of course, there are those money worshippers who will point out that we don't need to test that many people in order to resume normal operations. Let's remind those same people that estimates are anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of the people who have it will spread it, but will have no symptoms when they do. You cannot tell that they have it visually or even with a thermometer. So in order to get a firm handle on this, you need to test a hell of a lot more people than we are doing now. Computer Geek says, let's assume you only need to test half of the people in the U.S. every two weeks in order to reopen. We know that the amount of time that the virus takes to run its course is around two weeks. So even if you test them once, you need to test them two weeks later. Well, half the population, if we only test half, is 162,500,000. And even if everyone was absolutely diligent, it would take 11,600,000 tests per day in order to test half the population every two weeks. Now, remember, we're only doing 147,000 a day. They go on to write, even if you said you only need to do testing of 10 percent of the population every two weeks. Well, now you're looking at roughly one million one hundred and sixteen thousand tests per day. That is almost 10 times the number that we are currently doing. That, of course, is a massive undertaking to increase the number of tests from one hundred and forty seven thousand a day up to one million one hundred and sixteen thousand per day. You need to establish testing centers in just about every decent sized city and town in the U.S. Even if you concentrated on the higher populated cities or areas, people will not drive 50 miles out of their way just to get a test. So you're looking at a minimum of 100,000 or more testing facilities. How long will that take to set up? How many people do you need to train to do that many tests for processing by a lab? Storage of those tests until it gets to the lab. Processing by the lab. Reporting the results. Keeping track of who has been tested. Who have they been in contact with? Rules for businesses. So the Smithfield Foods Processing Plant in uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, the uh, super spreader outbreak event there, that that doesn't happen 100 to 500 times a day all over the U.S. after you let businesses open back up. 
How much will all of that cost? Who will keep track of it? Who and how will it be managed? What do you need to do to safeguard people's privacy and rights? Computer Geek goes on to say, Unfortunately, we are dealing with a public and especially right-wingers who only want easy answers to every problem. If it were that easy, one of the bumbling fools in this administration would have figured out how to do it in the month or two that we've already been dealing with it already. But then Donald Trump only hires the greatest minds in his administration. Computer Geek adds, huge eye roll goes here. (laughs) Uh, Finally, they conclude, given that this administration cannot find its ass with both hands, we can pretty much assume that we will have a vaccine available before we have adequate testing at this rate. Now, of course, even though we have uh, very smart commenters on our show, uh, he or she is just some anonymous commenter. I don't know who Computer Geek is, some anonymous commenter on the Internet, right? So uh, those very conservative claims uh, that we need 1,116,000 tests per day to open up safely, well, that does seem like a lot of tests. Uh, So, you know, we don't listen that uh, closely to anonymous commenters on the Internet. Well, a few really smart folks that are not broadcast commenters and not anonymous have a new report out today that indeed does show that Computer Geek, well, was wrong. But not because he or she overestimated the number of tests that we need to, to, to open up the country and the economy safely, but because he or she was overly optimistic, overly conservative in their numbers. Perhaps when he or she tried generously to reduce the number of those needing testing to just 10 percent of the population, uh, maybe that's what uh, 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 put off Computer Geek's number. But in fact... The U.S. will need to administer 20 million tests each day for the coronavirus by midsummer in order to fully remobilize the economy in a safe fashion. That, not according to an anonymous broadcast commenter, but according to a new report from a Harvard panel of more than 45 experts in health, science and economics. The new report, released by Harvard University's Edmund Safra Center for Ethics on Monday, emphasized the need for a massive scaling up of testing coupled with a robust contact tracing program in order to reopen the U.S. in a way that avoids future shutdowns. Sure, we can open everything up right now, but we'll just have to shut it down again in, you know, a couple of weeks. The report's top recommendations include a call for the nation to deliver 5 million tests per day by early June in order to ensure a safe reopening of portions of the economy. This number will need to increase over time, ideally by late July, to 20 million a day to fully remobilize the economy, write the authors, cautioning that even that figure may not be high enough to protect public health. The value in dramatically increasing testing is that it will prevent cycles of opening up and shutting down, the authors argue, adding that the testing output would allow the virus to be adequately managed until a vaccine is developed. This roadmap, they write, is the only approach to both contain the virus 
and ramp back up to a vibrant economic life. And in the long term, they say, it allows us to build an infrastructure of pandemic resilience that will serve us well when the next health crisis or disaster hits while improving community health. The authors said a pandemic testing board established by the federal government could help these efforts and ensure that, the, uh, that there is adequate testing supply allocated to different communities. In addition, the report said that an expansion of testing will, be, uh, will need to be supported by adding roughly 100,000 contact tracers across the U.S. Those would be people that would contact those who have been in touch with someone who has the virus. They also noted that efforts to isolate people uh, vulnerable to the disease must include job protection and necessary health care services. But, of course, none of this is actually happening at the federal level. None of it. Where the president of the United States is instead giving daily press briefings to claim that he's doing a fantastic job, that the federal government has nothing to do with testing. That's all up to the states. And that, you know, anybody in the media that reports facts and truth, that they're actually all liars out to get him. Because what we really need to do is just fling open the doors to commerce again and everything's going to be magically better. As the Harvard panel notes, uh, doing this properly will be expensive. Testing at a rate of 20 million each day would cost about 15 billion dollars per month, according to the report. That does sound like a whole hell of a lot of money. But the authors also argue that the cost would fall over time and that that cost pales in comparison to the overall economic cost of continued stay at home orders. So, yeah, it's costing a lot to stay at home. This would be cheaper if we just ramped up the testing as all of the experts are calling for. And no, Donald Trump is not an expert. Neither is the governor of Georgia. But I'll get to him momentarily. Uh, the uh, experts' uh, call for 20 million daily tests is also in line with recommendations from Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Romer, who said earlier this month that the U.S. needs to administer 20 million to 30 million tests per day. The U.S. Uh, instead has administered about 4 million tests to in total as of Monday afternoon. After all the time total. that we've had to get this prepared. Months and months. Yep. That's according to the COVID tracking project. Uh, Vice President Pence said on Sunday that the country was averaging about 150,000 tests per day now. Uh, Pence and Trump said last week that the U.S. had reached testing capacity in which states could gradually begin reopening. All of that in complete contradiction with experts and very smart broadcast commenters alike. It's not even close to true. As Computer Geek said, math and reality are actually important. Happily, at least some of our governors seem to recognize that, even some Republican ones, if you can believe it. Uh, as The Hill notes, uh, state officials have strongly pushed back against the statements from Pence and Trump. Coming from the White House, uh, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, for example, a Republican, said on Sunday uh, on CNN that it was, quote, absolutely false to suggest that states had adequate testing supplies, noting that shortages have been the number one problem since the virus reached the U.S. But don't tell Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott 
about any of this math or reality. He announced last week that he was opening up Texas uh, for business pretty soon. And don't tell Georgia's illegitimate Republican Governor Brian Kemp any of this either. He announced on Monday, just moments before we went on air for our previous show, that he was opening up the state for business this Friday. As the Daily uh, Beast reported... Governor uh, Brian Kemp announced on Monday that gyms, hair salons, nail salons, barber shops, bowling alleys, you know, where you put your fingers inside balls and then that those will all be allowed to reopen in the Peach State Friday of this week, even as the number of coronavirus cases continues to rise there. The governor, uh, who cited the pandemic's heavy toll on the state's economy, said that some restaurants and movie theaters can also open on Monday, as long as they adhere to social distancing guidelines, whatever those now mean. He's also given the green light to churches to hold in-person services. The announcement comes even as top health officials maintain that the best way to prevent further spread of the virus at this stage of the pandemic is to continue enforcing social distancing. Just last week, Kemp himself insisted that his main focus was to increase testing capacity in the state and said it was too early to determine whether he could he would relax restrictions in place to control the spread of the virus. That, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, just last week, it was too early. Don't even talk to him about that sort of thing. And then, like magic, By his Monday. concerns float yes. away. Everything is fine. Relaxing restrictions, even before an increase in testing capacity, has nothing to do with politics. Right, Governor Kemp? Even as right-wingers egged on by Fox News and therefore the president and funded by right-wing groups like FreedomWorks and the Koch Brothers Americans for Prosperity in an AstroTurf redux of their original AstroTurf Tea Party protests. They're all protesting in states run by Democrats to lift stay-at-home orders. But, of course, none of this has anything to do with politics. Right, Governor Kemp? This could be one of the most important decisions you will ever make in your personal or political life because so much depends on getting it right. Opening, reopening too soon, you can imagine the potential consequences of that. What goes through your mind when you think of that? Well, I can tell you, I don't give a damn about politics right now. Oh, really? You don't? You don't give a damn about politics right now, Governor Kemp? Then why did you mention politics? He, the guy didn't ask you anything about politics. Why did you bring that up first thing? We're talking about somebody that has put their whole life into building a business that has people that they love and work with every single day working in many of these places. Yeah, I love them so much that we need to call them into work so they put possibly die. That are at home going broke, worried about whether they can feed their children, make the mortgage payment. You know, these are these are tough decisions, no doubt. And I've had to make many of them. Mm, so and tough. I can promise you I will have to make more of them. So manly. But we also got to think about the effects on our economy and on these individuals from a mental health perspective, from a physical health perspective, and literally for people being able to put food on their tables. So from a physical health perspective? God knows what he's talking about. But, you know, the idea that you would put food on your table, 
you would normally go to the state for assistance with that. So there have been some rumblings on Twitter that Kemp's actual desire here is to uh, prevent workers from filing for state unemployment benefits oh, oh, yeah. by forcing them back to work this fast. Sure, of course. And then there were some small business owners also on Twitter who said that as the owner of one of these types of businesses, this dis- this decision demolishes our ability to negotiate with our commercial landlord about easing the rent during the pandemic. Yeah, I can't do it because Governor said you're open for business. And if you have a health problem, if you have a health concern uh, and you're an employee at one of these companies, don't try to say you're worried about that. You need to come in and you need to come in to work. Why? Because your physical health depends on it, apparently, according to uh, Brian Kemp. So, of course, yes, it's about politics. There's a reason why it's only Republican governors who are currently doing this. As of Monday, Georgia has recorded over 18,300 confirmed cases of the coronavirus. They've had at least 637 deaths. That, according to Johns Hopkins University, those liars over at Johns Hopkins. There's also a reason why governors like Kemp are not didn't even bother to consult with the mayors of their largest and second largest cities before making such an announcement that has nothing to do with politics. Because, of course, he knows they will tell him, do not do this. Here's Atlanta Mayor Keisha Bottoms on CNN this morning. I have four kids in my house and no sooner than the governor made his announcement, my 18-year-old, who will be 18 tomorrow, came running into the room to announce to me that the governor said he could leave home. So as a parent, I am concerned because what I know is that when I look at the data that we receive from our public health department each day, our numbers are going up. We get a count at noon and we get one at 7 p.m. When I look at the 24-hour period for uh, the 7 p.m. count we got today, Our death rate is up by almost 14%. Our positives up almost 7%. And we are not testing asymptomatic in people with mild symptoms. And so it concerns me. I have a great working relationship with our governor. uh, But I did not speak with him before he made this announcement. I spoke with Mayor Hardy Davis, who is the mayor of Augusta, Georgia, the second largest city in the state. He did not speak with the governor. I've spoken with several leaders across the state. So we really are at a loss. And I am concerned as a mother and as the mayor of our capital city. Yeah, you'd you'd think he would talk to the mayor of the largest city, the capital city, before doing that. But Governor Brian Kemp, who is not making a decision about politics, claimed he was going to be opening for business uh, after favorable data enhanced testing and the approval of our health care officials, all of which appears to be a lie. But what would you expect from a man who, as secretary of state of Georgia, appears to have stolen his election for governor in 2018? We'll be joined by my uh, guest momentarily to discuss how to keep the state's upcoming election safe from being stolen and from killing voters at the same time. The governors of two other southern states, South Carolina and Tennessee, uh, both moved to ease restrictions on businesses shortly after Kemp's announcement. But of course, all of this uh, is absolutely political. It has nothing to do with health or well-being of the American people, and it's also just absolutely deadly. 
David Sirota's newsletter today pointed to a recent study from the University of Chicago that underlines uh, both points here, um, revealing a, a, a divide inside the Fox News bubble. He writes, if you somehow think this has nothing to do with the specific messages coursing through the media, think again. A University of Chicago study shows that within the Fox News bubble, greater viewership of Sean Hannity relative to Tucker Carlson is strongly associated with a greater number of COVID-19 cases and deaths in the early stages of the pandemic. The study notes that Carlson at that point warned viewers about the threat posed by the coronavirus uh, from early in February, while Hannity originally dismissed the risks associated with the virus before gradually adjusting his position starting in late February. And after Hannity's shift in tone at that point, the diverging trajectories on COVID-19 began to revert to come together again. So, yes, even if you watched Fox News, if you watch Sean Hannity, you are more likely to die than if you watched Tucker Carlson. Seriously. I know. It's it's mind blowing. It is absolutely mind blowing. Uh, hey, Sean, you got blood on your hands, buddy. So, uh, yeah, uh, even among Fox News viewers, there is a difference in health and death depending on which show you most watched and chose to believe in. Uh, the takeaway notes, Sirota, our ability to stop the virus is being undermined by our collective inability to accept empirical evidence and data or math and reality, as our friend Computer Geek described it. So uh, sorry for all of that data and all of those hard facts, but you really need to understand reality here as all of this moves forward, as inconvenient as that may be for some, particularly if reality, you know, may not fit into some people's hopes for a reelection this November. And speaking of which... A new lawsuit has just been filed against the great state of Georgia regarding their upcoming rescheduled primary elections and how to keep them safe for all voters. Not that Brian Kemp likely gives a damn. Marilyn Marks returns to the broadcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We will get to sweet Georgia in a moment. But uh, sadly, here's some not surprising at all news that we promised about uh, two weeks ago we would likely be reporting here on the Bradcast. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in Wisconsin, Officials have identified seven people who appear to have contracted COVID-19 through activities related to the state's April 7 election, according to Milwaukee Health Commissioner Jeanette Kowalik. 
Six of the cases are in voters. One is a poll worker, she said. You'll recall the April 7 election was the one that the state's Democratic governor, Tony Evers, tried to either postpone or move to an all-vote-by-mail election, but the Republicans in the state legislature and the Republicans on the state Supreme Court and the Republicans on the stolen U.S. Supreme Court all forced forced the state to move ahead as planned, resulting in tens of thousands of voters who had yet to receive their absentee ballots before Election Day being forced to wait in hours-long lines and crowd into polling places to either risk potential death or face seeing their votes suppressed. Kowalik said that officials uh, only have 30 percent of the data as far as any new COVID-19 cases that were associated with the date of the 7th of April when the in-person election was held. By the end of this week, officials hope to have additional information on the cases that were reported between April 7 and this week including whether any of the seven cases were fatal and whether they were concentrated at any of the city's five in-person polling locations. Yes, they had only five places to vote in Milwaukee instead of the usual 182 because they couldn't find poll workers who are willing to risk their lives to do so. Uh, Kowalik, the uh, health commissioner, said there needs to be a little bit more analysis so we can connect the dots. That's why case investigation and contact tracing is so important. She said, as you recall, there were people that were in line for a very long time to get their vote in. So if you figure out around a range of time when someone was there or in polling sites or in the line, connect to someone who was an actual case, that's when we would do notifications. Yes, all of these people, thousands of people will need to be contacted if that's even possible to figure out who might have come in touch with those people who now have the disease. Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett said about 3,500 voters came to each of the city's five voting sites and dozens of workers were there as well. He said this will tell you why we were so adamant about trying to not have this occur. Tuesday marked the 14th day since the election. That's a time frame that epidemiologists agree typically passes before symptoms of a virus infection appear after two weeks of incubation. But there are still at least 20 other states that are still to hold their primary elections this year, many of them previously postponed. And, of course, all 50 states trying to figure out how to hold elections safely this November, at least if they are states where elected officials actually give a damn about the health of their own voters. As noted in the previous segment, Georgia does not appear to be one of those states, at least according to its top elected or in this case, maybe elected official, Governor Brian Kemp. Georgia's originally uh, scheduled primary election was supposed to be held on March 24, but it was postponed due to coronavirus with its new Republican secretary of state subsequently announcing that he would be sending an absentee ballot application not a ballot, but an application for one to all active voters in the state. The de definition of active, however, is itself questionable. The new date for Georgia's primary is now set for June 9th. But the Coalition for Good Governance, which has long been suing and winning in the state of Georgia on all matter of election related issues, from their use of unverifiable touchscreen voting systems to inappropriately rejected absentee ballots, 
The coalition announced today that they are suing again in Georgia for a whole bunch of stuff this time as chaos unfolds in our nation's elections during a pandemic and in a state where things are likely to get much worse in the coming weeks due to Kemp's reopening of the state for business long before health officials say it is anywhere near safe to do so. Joining us now for the first time in way too long, it feels like, is Coalition for Good Governance founder and personal nightmare to both Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, one Marilyn Marks. Oh, Marilyn, welcome back to the Bradcast. Hope you're doing okay. Doing great, Brad. Thank you so much for having me today. So uh, what now, Marilyn? Why can't you leave (laughs) poor Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger alone? Why are you suing yet again in the state of Georgia? Well, because as you pointed out, the elected officials in Georgia do not seem to care one whit about the safety, the Mm -hmm. health safety of the voters and their poll workers in Georgia. And somebody had to do something about it. The General Assembly was doing nothing. The governor was doing nothing. And the secretary of state was doing nothing. So we said somebody's got to speak up and do something. So, as you say, yesterday we filed this lawsuit. And, um, Brad, even though it is 132 pages, and as you say, (laughs) requests 30-something types of relief, Mm -hmm. we could have just filed one page. And it could have just said, don't be Wisconsin. Don't be Wisconsin. Yeah, there ought to be a lot yeah. of suits around the country like that. Before we get to the, the, the some of the specific demands in your lawsuit, uh, and as you say, there are a lot of them, uh, Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, announced last month that he would be sending absentee ballot applications automatically to all active voters. Now, this in a state where it has not been easy to uh, to vote absentee, but it has been worse at the polling places where uh, all voters across the entire state are forced to use these dreadful touchscreen voting systems that are now a, a vector for disease. But uh, it seems that Raffensperger was almost doing the right thing by sending out those absentee ballot applications, but it was only to all active voters. Do you agree that, A, that was the right thing to do? How did it work out? And who are these non-active voters who will not get an absentee ballot application? Well, Brad, it might be a little bit worse than, than it appears on the surface. Yes, he was, I think, headed in the right direction there mm-hmm. by trying to send out ballot applications to offer voters a chance to just automatically apply without having to figure out how to go on the Internet and do it. Mm -hmm. However, he failed to use their mailing address. Even though in voter (laughs) registration, even though in the voter registration roles, of course, you've got your residential address. And many people, particularly in rural Georgia, don't have home delivery of mail. And so he didn't bother to use the mailing address. He used the residential address. Therefore, 625,000 voters did not, they were active, the, the active voter list uh-huh. didn't get their application because he sent it to the wrong location. L- let me get that straight. So they have, <laughs> so they have a, 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 a residential address where they live, but you say that uh, are these people who are working out of state or have a second no, home? No, um, or why, why would they have no, a second address? No, no, no. no um, these are, this will be people, in fact, this affects many people in the African-American community in rural Georgia, 
clear, um, and we even had this in Aspen when I used to live there. Mm-hmm. Many places didn't have home delivery for mail. You get your mail at the local post office oh. in your little village, in your little town. You have uh-huh. to go into town to get your mail. And, you know, we are now talking about people who are already, Randolph County is an example. They had a huge percentage of their voters mm-hmm. um, not have mailing addresses, not have home mm-hmm. delivery of mail. Mm-hmm. It is heavily African-American. It is a very poor county. It is a county that has been extremely hard hit in Southwest Georgia by coronavirus. Mm-hmm. They have hit with everything, and so this is like the worst place for their voters not to be able to get a mail application, and they have a low percentage of voters in that county with Internet. So, so it, one of one of the things we asked for in our lawsuit is send it to the right damn address. Uh, yeah, that would be useful. Uh, and then there's the issue of the uh, active voters. It's something that I, I brought up the day that it was announced he was sending these out. It's the Secretary of State himself, in this case, who sort of decides who is an active voter and who is a non-active voter, uh, correct? And non-active does not mean you're not on the rolls. It means you can go in and vote normally. But in in Georgia, I think, they consider if you haven't voted in in two uh, the last two federal elections, you're considered to be non-active and you will uh, not right. get a uh, an absentee ballot application? Generally, that's right. You know, it can get a little more complicated than that, but but generally, that's right. But there was another problem, Brad. Yeah. And that is, um, you've heard of uh, Gwinnett County, which is a very diverse county right outside of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. They are a county that is required by federal law to receive bilingual election material. Okay. You you hear where this is going, don't Mm -hmm. you? Yeah. They got theirs in English. (laughs) Of course. Of course. (laughs) Of course they did. And there is a there is a federal lawsuit uh, just filed last week on that. We we are not involved in that. We did mention it um, in our filing that you know generally this whole ballot application process that went to all active that was supposed to go to all active voters just mm-hmm. didn't even make it that far. And I hear your point about the inactive certainly should mm-hmm. have been considered as well. Uh, luckily, some of the campaigns. Are send, they are taking um, taking the responsibility, if you will, mm-hmm. or taking the opportunity to send applications to the inactive voters. And I so sh- hopefully they will get the word. Well, I hope they do, because uh, I'm reminded, uh, and I should let folks know, that uh, they can uh, catch you, a glimpse of you, in HBO's new documentary, Kill Chain, The Cyber War on America's Elections. And I, I'm reminded of this, because you mentioned Gwinnett County, where there were uh, all kinds of problems on Election Day back in, I guess that was 2018, that we see in the film. Yes. You yes. were there, I think, at the time, and the voter cards, the voter access cards, cards for the touchscreens weren't working, the lines were backing up forever. If there were people in line that day who could not stay and wait to vote, if that was the second time in a row that they didn't cast a vote, those would be among the uh, inactive voters and they might be shut out again here. That's right. And um, when, when uh, when they get the election offices undeliverable mail coming Mm -hmm. back from a voter, Mm -hmm. that then starts the process. Uh, beginning to knock them off the voter roll. We're going to have to ask the court for all of these undeliverable ballot applications that that he mailed to the wrong location. 
which are now coming back undeliverable, to not let those begin the process of creating even more inactive voters. By, yeah, by, uh, by the November election, when they'll certainly <laughs> screw more people. Uh, it, you know, in an election, by the way, where we could finally see Georgia flip from red to blue. All right, let's get uh, in the few minutes we have left here now to your actual lawsuit that you're filing, and I believe you filed this in federal court, Marilyn? Yes, and in fact, these points that we were just covering are actually in that lawsuit. Okay, good. Um, That the the secretary's got to send out the right addresses. But the thing, Brad, that you're going to like the most about this lawsuit is that we have said, wait a minute, you can't use those touchscreen BMDs in this upcoming election. They are just going to transfer viruses from person to person, and not only that, of course, of course all of the parts and pieces of that are going to carry virus and have to be handled by so many people. But as you know, that's 80,000 pieces of equipment that are going to just take a massive amount of poll worker labor that's not available right now. Why, Why spend those hundreds of thousands of hours installing all of this dangerous equipment? And so we are very hopeful that the court will, will agree with this common sense analysis. It really doesn't take mm-hmm. an epidemiologist to tell us that viruses are going to travel on, on those machines. Yeah. And um, so that is one of the big asks. Um, the other key thing that we're asking for here, Brad, is to push the election back another three weeks. Yes, three weeks isn't magic, but, you know, at least until Governor Kemp announced his crazy ideas yesterday of reopening everything, we thought an extra three weeks would be very beneficial in in hopefully having, getting on the other side of the curve. But given the foolishness and the recklessness that, that he engaged in yesterday, it is probably now even more important to get that additional time to make more preparations and to try to make things as safe as can possibly be in this circumstance. Yeah, it's amazing to me. I mean, in in fact, uh, obviously that's the right thing to do, although the thing that comes to my head is, I don't know, Marilyn, three weeks more might mean three weeks more of infected people now that uh, he's opening the the state for business again. This is insane. You've got, by the way, a great graphic that you included with your your Twitter thread when you announced this uh, suit, uh, I think, late last night, showing all of the places. It's not just the touchscreen machines themselves, which are vectors for disease. You've got the poll workers who have to take driver's licenses from the voters. You've got the voter then signing in on another touchscreen, these electronic poll books. Then the poll worker giving the card back to the voter, then inserting that uh, card into the machine, then finally touching the machine, and then giving that card back to another poll worker. I mean, this is about six different places at least in these polls uh, where you can spread a virus when you're using these stupid, idiotic, and yes, unverifiable touchscreen voting machines. Has Raffensperger uh, not backed off at all to allow counties the option to go to a much safer hand-marked paper ballot system? 
No. In early March, one of the counties, uh, Athens-Clark County, mm-hmm. um, decided that they were going to do that because, as you know, these don't produce secret ballots either. Everybody along the room can see in the room can see how you're voting. They're so big and bright and mm-hmm. stand upright. They decided they were going with secret uh, secret ballots, which are hand-marked paper ballots, mm-hmm. and the uh, State Election Board and Secretary Raffensperger had an emergency hearing and levied fines on them and punished them for choosing hand-marked paper ballots. Yep. So clearly we have to go to the court. We had written um, the Secretary uh, Raffensperger and the State Board back on March the 23rd, March 24th, and and sent that graphic to him then, said, you need to really back off of this. This is dangerous. Of course, we got nothing in response. So this, mm. these ideas that, that we have, these things we have asked for, they're not new. For the most part, we've been asking and asking and cannot get a response. And I'm also moved by uh, some of the things that you feel that, well, that you had to list in here, uh, things that seem like they should be common sense that you would not have to sue to ensure, for example, uh, a PPE, personal protective equipment, to be required and supplied by the state for poll workers, masks required for in-person voters, supplied by the state for voters who do not have their own masks. Uh, are these really things that uh, Raffin Secretary of State Raffensperger has not already listed out to be put in place for the currently scheduled, what is it, uh, currently scheduled for, for June 9. June 9, yeah. right. No, certainly not. And, and, and get this, Cobb County, which was a sizable county, literally went on Facebook and begged for people to donate masks. <laughs> now, is this outrageous? Um, and, yeah. you know, therefore, we felt like we, we just absolutely had to try to get the court to intervene to get um, Raffensperger and the state board to do the right thing. To allow yeah. uh, curbside voting so people don't have to uh, to go in if they're, uh, if they, well, if they have a disability or if they just fear no, being No, no, we're saying for everyone. Actually, uh-huh. actually, we have gotten some really good reactions, Brad, from... Um, from some of the counties mm-hmm. in, I'll say, in, some metro, in the metro area, there are some counties considering turning parking decks into curbside voting locations. You come in, you take a parking place, kind of thinking of it as the, you know, mm-hmm. sonic drive-in form of voting. Somebody will yeah. come to your car, give you a ballot, slip it through your window, and, um, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you've got more of a barrier, right? You've got your windows in your car yeah. up. And, and and then let the person drop it in a ballot on their a ballot box on their way out. Very little touching. And if you included a lime slushy and some French fries, you'd probably <laughs> boost turnout in a great way. Um, probably, uh, Marilyn. Uh, before I let you go, here is: uh, Will you have the same federal judge? Is this part of the uh, federal lawsuit that you have been uh, uh, working for quite some time, uh, at which first resulted in getting rid of the older touchscreens? Unfortunately, it made way for the newer touchscreens that you're also trying to get rid of. Uh, it, will the uh, same federal judge who has been overseeing that case, who has been uh, very good, um, it, it seems, will uh, she be the one to uh, hear this uh, this uh, complaint as well? We don't yet know. We just filed it last night, and mm-hmm. at least by the time you and I got on the air, we had not heard uh, which judge will be assigned. 
And um, so we're waiting to hear that. But, um, you know, yes, we did take this to federal court. And, um, you know, because we really feel like the federal courts are in mm-hmm. the best place to look at the protection of voting rights. And I, uh, I, I really hope that a lot of other states, because really uh, the list of items you have here, uh, other than the touchscreens when it, when it comes to states that don't use touchscreens, other than that, a lot of these things could be used in state after state. There's some 20 that are planning to hold elections, uh, primary elections still, all 50 this November. Uh, you got a lot of st- uh, common sense stuff in here that it does not seem like you need to sue for. But we're talking about the state of Georgia, so uh, yeah, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Well, and look at Wisconsin. <laughs> they didn't start getting serious until it was too late. Yeah, we're we're not seeing these kind of changes take place in other states as fast as we should. Yeah, and you know, the states should be enacting these things now. Yeah, and I'm worried that even if you're uh, even if you win this suit and get these things, that uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has said nope. It's uh, the Purcell principle doesn't allow you to change rules before an election. That is something you may find yourself running into as well. But I will point folks uh, to your lawsuit, Marilyn. I will thank you again for the tremendous work that you continue to do at CoalitionForGoodGovernance.org, which uh, runs solely on help from uh, you know supporters across the yes, country who, absolutely. Who, who owe you a great uh, a great debt frankly for your years of fighting for uh, voting rights and particularly for taking it to the state of Georgia which needs it taken to them more than just about any <laughs> other state in the union Marilyn Marks coalitionforgoodgovernance.org I strongly recommend you follow her Twitter feed which is Marilyn R Marks the number 1 and Keep an eye out for her on HBO's great new documentary, Kill Chain, the cyber war on America's elections. That has now been made free for all to watch at uh, uh, by HBO over on their YouTube channel. We will link to that as well. It's great. We had the filmmakers on a couple of uh, weeks ago on this program. Marilyn, keep up the good work. Let Thank us know. You, when, let us know when this case moves forward. I want to hear hear how things go for my poor friend Brad we, Reffensperger. You certainly, you certainly will. Thanks so much, Neil. You bet. Stay Thank safe. you. Okay, got to get out. Quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. No time for chit-chat, <laughs> just our latest Green News report. The most extraordinary development that took place today when the U.S. main blend, West Texas Intermediate, fell more than 306%. You see it on the screen. It is negative $37.63 a barrel. Oil prices plunge into historic negative territory. 
Trump EPA rolls back rules on toxic mercury pollution. Plus, what we cannot afford to do is to jump out of the frying pan of COVID and then into the raging fire of climate change. Earth Day and climate action somehow during a global pandemic. All of those somehows and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Oil prices have turned negative. You can't pay people to take that crap. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, you may have to help me with this one. Oil prices are now negative? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a remarkable thing, and it's also a remarkable confluence of historical events. Monday was the 10th anniversary of the deadly rig explosion that started the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. the biggest oil spill in U.S. history. Also on Monday, one particular benchmark of U.S. crude oil prices crashed to its lowest level since oil futures began trading in 1983, plunging into negative prices, literally almost negative $40 a barrel. Now, it's partly a quirk of the market. This was for future oil deliveries in May, meaning that producers are paying pipeline and storage companies to take it off their hands, which market traders deemed essentially worthless. Okay, let me stop you for a second. They will give you money if you take their oil. Correct. It's happening because the coronavirus shutdowns have decimated demand for oil on top of a little price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia and a pre-existing supply glut. Oil storage in the United States is now near capacity. It is partly U.S. drillers' own fault. They knew that there was an oversupply, but they refused to restrain themselves. Why don't they just stop drilling? They won't, according to Goldman Sachs oil analyst Andrew Tilton on CNBC. Producers don't want to shut in wells and do things that will cost them in the longer term. Everyone is hoping that someone else will cut supply and cut production so they don't have to. So they just won't stop drilling because it costs them too much money to stop drilling. So they continue drilling and then they pay people to take the oil off their hands. Exactly. Okay, that's a fantastic business model. For the record, the price of a barrel of sunshine has not changed, nor has the price of a barrel of wind energy. Meanwhile, the Trump Environmental Protection Agency last week announced it is gutting an Obama-era regulation that required coal-fired power plants to reduce emissions of toxic mercury, which causes serious ailments and brain damage in children. But worse, the new rule also effectively dismantles the legal basis underpinning all pollution regulations. The previous mercury and air toxic standard dramatically cut toxic mercury emissions and other pollutants. EPA's own scientists say this rollback will increase premature deaths from air pollution, and utility companies don't even want the rollback because they've already complied with it. But the new rule is really about handcuffing future administrations from crafting new pollution regulations by fundamentally altering how the EPA calculates its cost-benefit analyses. It prevents the agency from considering co-benefits that arise from reducing other pollutants at the same time as mercury. That's to make it appear that the costs are too high and the benefits to the public too low to make it worthwhile for polluters to not poison Americans. So if it's going to cost an industry $10 billion to clean itself up, however, it will save the American people $30 billion in health costs. The administration is saying, nope, you can't look at that $30 billion in health costs. You can only look at that $10 billion that you're costing the industry. No benefits, all costs.
Oil prices are negative. The administration is tossing out regulations that their own scientists say will keep people alive. And you can't even count the money saved in lives not lost when determining regulations. This world is upside down. Finally, Wednesday, April 22nd, is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. This year, because of the global pandemic, all of the planned demonstrations, celebrations, concerts, and festivals are going digital. But former U.N. climate chief Christiana Figueres notes that the coronavirus also provides a rare window of opportunity for governments to restructure their economic recovery policies to incorporate climate action, resilience, and justice. The opportunity and the responsibility here is to figure out how do we design and implement the recovery packages so that they definitely put people back to work and they reignite the economy, but we do so in a clean, sustainable, long-term way. Dennis Hayes, one of the first Earth Day organizers, said in a Seattle Times op-ed, quote, COVID-19 robbed us of Earth Day this year, so let's make Election Day Earth Day. Why not? It's a world turned upside down at this point. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Round and round. So let's also, by the way, let's make uh, Christmas Easter. Let's make Veterans Day Arbor Day. Let's make Fourth of July April Fool's Day. Well, why not? Well, you know, listen, he's got a point, though. You know, if people aren't going to get to celebrate Earth Day in person like they were going to normally, then, hey, a next best thing is to go ahead and vote for people who care about climate action and public health. What a crazy concept. That makes just too much sense, Desi Doyen. For today's world, yeah. Yeah, uh, you're, you're not welcome here anymore. <laughs> uh, all right, getting out, our thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Marilyn Marks of the Coalition of Good Governance, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. We hope we make it worth your while each and every day. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is thanks to the remarkable generosity of those of you who, in the middle of this pandemic, uh, are able and willing to help us to continue to stay on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. That's how we stay on the air. Just you guys. You guys alone. Thank you. Uh, you can also drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I want to turn the whole thing upside down. I'll find the things they say just can't be found. I'll share this love I find with everyone. We'll sing and dance to Mother Nature's songs I don't want this feeling to go away